1: Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for a special central bank bifurcation start to the programme. The Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank policies heading in different ways. Pound firmly entering a hike pausing phase while Lagarde still has inflation guns ablaze. Another quarter point, the ECB raised. China though, the outlier. Time for rate cuts, it says. A complex economic and geopolitical picture that today we will appraise or at least Binky Chadderwell. He's the chief global strategist at Deutsche Bank and he will be joining us shortly. And from central bank actions to changing superpower factions, Ian Bremmer, the founder of G0 Media, joins us to discuss what he calls the new digital world order. And what it will mean for us all. Perfect timing amid some serious artificial intelligence alarm. Although I have to say it's less alarm and more caution really, I think, across global stock markets. U.S. futures are a little weaker as investors pass the Federal Reserve's rate pause announcement. Powell and company hitting the snooze button after 10 straight hikes higher. That alarm call could be coming soon. Powell says the July meeting remains live and officials are pencilling in the possibility at least of two more rate hikes to battle still sticky inflation lots of debate today too though over whether Powell can should and will then follow through meanwhile there's no go-slow in the land of the euro stocks mostly lower there too as the european central bank announces its eighth consecutive rate hike and more hikes likely to follow the ecb of course playing catch up with the fed its borrowing costs still more than 1 percentage point below fed levels to Asia now and a higher Hang Seng as Beijing lowers a key policy rate for the first time in almost a year as growth there slows. Weak new Chinese data today too with youth unemployment, we sc- discuss this a lot, hitting fresh all-time highs. A busy day indeed for Central Bankonomics. And Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. A unanimous vote to skip this meeting, which was what you and I were discussing. But there were a few pointers there that were at least giving investors pause for thought, the possibility of more hikes, but also suggesting that if you're hoping for rate cuts, get over it.
0: Yeah, you're a couple years out on that um, for rate cuts. Look, I think that the Powell playbook has uh, – we're turning into a new chapter on the Powell playbook. There will be a pause here. As you rightly point out, July is a live meeting, which means there could be a rate hike on the on the horizon there. And I think what's really interesting, especially coupled with this morning's um, U.S. economic data, this economy is resilient. I mean, it's holding in there. After all of those rate hikes, um, they raised their growth targets for the year. They lowered their um, unemployment rate targets for the year. And this morning we had strong retail sales. Decent retail sales, I'll call it. And, um, you know, jobless claims that are still at historic lows. So you have this American economy that is, is sort of impervious in some ways to these uh, these 10 rate hikes. I, al- I almost wonder after seeing what uh, what the EU did today, if, you know, maybe it wasn't the right call to pause at this point, because the U.S. economy has been pretty, pretty strong and chugging along here.
1: Yeah. As we said yesterday, um, one month really doesn't give you that much more information so if that meeting's live then perhaps they did yesterday what they said they would do and so therefore they had no choice but if you base it on the data and they keep saying they're data dependent um more still to do perhaps
0: maybe a couple more maybe i I saw one you know one participant had maybe penciled in four more so uh, where does that take us into next year? And, and what is the lag effect? You know, the Washington Post reporter, Rachel Siegel, asked a very good question in the, in the press conference with Jay Powell yesterday. She said, you know, what do we know? What are you assuming about the lag effect here and when this wall of tightening will really start working in? And Powell basically says, we'll know it We'll know we're at the end when, when, when we know we're at the end, but we don't know right now when that is or how to actually gauge it. And inflation, core inflation, still too high. I mean, that was, I think, a real bottom line there. Inflation is moderating with great inflation news by my reading this week, but great in terms of the direction, not the final level. Right. So um, they still have more work to do on the inflation front. It's just such a confusing picture still, uh, you know, 15 months into this. And I'll point out, you know, 15 months into the Fed's aggressive rate hike campaign, well over 4 million jobs have been created. The unemployment mm. rate still near the lowest in 60-some years. Consumer spending still up 0.3 uh, percent. You know, the consumer's still chugging along here in the stock market at one-year highs. I mean, so it all of it is just a, a riddle.
1: <laughs> yes. We'll know when we know, We don't know what we don't know at this stage. And when we do know, we'll let you know, we hope. Someone hand the man a crystal ball. Um, (laughs) Christine Romans. I saw that conversation, by the way, with the analyst. And it was a great question in the uh, the press meeting on Early Start this morning. So um, great to get. Thank you, Christine Romans. Thank you. Okay, a UN official says as many as 750 people were on board the boat that sank off the Greek coast on Tuesday evening. Authorities say at least 78 lives were lost, but the true number of casualties looks certain to be far higher. There are reports that up to 100 children may have been in the hold of the boat. Correspondent uh, Melissa Bell joins us now from Greece. Devastating in all respects, Melissa, not the first we've seen this year, but perhaps so many children on board. What more information do we have?
2: Leave and now, authorities are carrying out the grisly task, uh, Julia, of trying to figure out who was on the boat of course very difficult for anyone to know with any certainty or even to begin to figure out families of those who might have been have started to show up here at the coast guard uh, in kalamata also in the building behind me some of those suspected to have been the smugglers that helped these people get on the boats are even now uh, being questioned but beyond that there are much graver questions being asked actually about how this boat that was known to have been distressed could have been left to sink a dramatic rescue at sea, the Greek coast guard pulling a group of people to safety, the lucky ones. Survivors of yet another catastrophe on the deadliest migrant crossing in the world, the Mediterranean. Somehow 104 people managed to leave this overcrowded fishing boat alive, but hundreds that you see here did not most still missing in the deepest part of the Mediterranean Sea, just 50 miles off the Greek coast. On shore, medics rush to preserve the lives of those that survived, their bodies in trauma after hours in the water. All are men. Aid workers tell me others were unable to get out.
3: What we are getting from the people is that the, mostly the kids and the women, they've, they've been uh, like locked inside the, uh, the basement of the boat.
2: As the search for bodies continues, there are questions about how long it took to try to help these people. The vessel started out from Libya, heading towards Italy, and called for help on Tuesday afternoon, one charity has said. It claims the authorities knew for hours that the vessel was in peril, but that a rescue operation was, quote, not launched until it was too late. At this stage, there is little hope that more survivors will be found. Those that did make it are deeply traumatized and their future in Europe far from certain. And the images of course that one can't help but have in one's mind julia listening uh, to what we've heard from the eyewitnesses who talk about what happened what we understand is that this ship sunk within 10 to 15 minutes once it did start listing it was all very fast the desperate scenes that they must have witnessed as it went down with the women and children and the vast majority of people still inside julia
1: awful melissa thank you so much for joining us there from greece Okay, making gradual progress. That's what the Ukrainian military is saying as the offensive continues in the south and east of the country. Meanwhile, the head of the UN nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, is back in Zaporizhia to assess the safety of Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Russia, meanwhile, says its forces have, quote, repelled Ukrainian attacks in that region. And Sam Kiley joins us now. Sam, it was the Russian Defence Ministry suggesting that the Ukrainian offensive in Zaporizhia has been repelled. Do we have any more context or have we heard anything from the Ukrainian side?
4: Well, the Ukrainians say, uh, surprise, surprise, Julia, the exact opposite. They Mm. say that they are making significant advances, particularly southeast of uh, the city of Bakhmut, with the deputy defense minister today again uh, saying that they've taken an additional uh, three kilometers. That seems to be roughly about 20 square kilometers that they've taken over the last week. That's a a, a guesstimate by me. But uh, they are making significant progress there. It's not very rapid, but it is significant. And at the same time, there are incremental gains that the Ukrainians have made on that very heavily defended southern front line of, of uh, Zaporizhia or rather from Zaporizhia to Donetsk City on the approach ultimately to the Crimean Peninsula. That is where the at the moment, the counteroffensive is underway, uh, not quite in full force at all, uh, but it is growing in energy and uh, a passion, if you like, from the Ukrainian side. They are taking losses, and those losses are now being, in terms of material, uh, at least in part being replenished by the United States, which has just recently announced uh, extra 15 Bradley fighting vehicles, 20 strikers, more HIMARS missiles, more Javelin missiles, more ammunition across the board, really, uh, and other NATO partners are doing or are due to do just the same. That is a recognition from the international allies of Ukraine, that this counteroffensive, particularly when it gets underway in earnest and builds on in scale, is going to be costly and it is going to need constant replenishment if it's going to succeed at all.
1: Yeah, and you got that sense as well the swift replenishment, at least as far as those vehicles were concerned this week, following what just days after um, reports that, that a similar number of vehicles had been lost. Um, Sam, can I ask you about the IAEA chief? and uh, the visit to the Zaporizhia power plant, obviously in the proximity of the dam um, that broke as well and the flooding that we saw around there, in addition to the fighting. What have we heard from, um, from them?
4: Well, they're inspecting it uh, kind of as we speak. They have, of course, had international monitors there as well. Now, the agency is most concerned, really, that this nuclear power station is the only nuclear power station that has ever been occupied by hostile military forces. That is the Russians. They took it by force last year. It has been used since then as a Russian fire base. It is absolutely on the front line of this war. It is used to fire. Its location is used as a fire base to shoot uh, artillery, in particular, at, Ru- at uh, Ukrainian targets on the other side of the Dnipro River, or the dam indeed, that's uh, on the Dnipro River there, the Novokokovka Dam. But the uh, other aspect of this is that as the Ukrainians advance, that that location is going potentially to become much more uh, dangerous, much more fraught, much more possibility of some kind of accidental damage being done to this nuclear facility. It is in a kind of warm uh, well, one of the reactors is, is in warm shutdown and the others are in a cold shutdown, so it's relatively safe. It be very difficult to breach one of those reactors, but there's lots of nuclear material around there that could suffer damage and leak and do certainly a degree of local damage. So the UN's IAEA is looking very carefully at the threats to it and trying to get assurances from both sides that somehow they will avo- avoid bringing the war into that nuclear power station, Julia. Mm.
1: I'm there in Kyiv. Thank you, sir. Great to have you with us. And North Korea has launched two short-range ballistic missiles, firing them over the sea to the east of the country. That's according to South Korea, which believes the missiles were fired from the Sunan area north of Pyongyang. The 14th such launch by North Korea this year, Japan says both missiles landed within its exclusive economic zone. And a long-awaited report is finally out on former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the Partygate scandal. The UK Parliament's Privileges Committee found Johnson knowingly misled lawmakers when asked about Downing Street gatherings that breached COVID restrictions in place at the time. Johnson called the report a charade, declaring, quote, it's a dreadful day for democracy. The former Prime Minister stepped down as an MP last week before the committee could suspend him. And coming up here on First Move, a Fed pause, but not without some claws, especially if you're hoping for rate cuts. We'll dissect Wednesday's Fed Speak with Deutsche Bank's chief global strategist, Binky Chadder. And later, are we looking towards an AI apocalypse? Some CEOs say not so fast. We'll discuss later in the show.
5: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome back to First Move. The European Parliament has approved landmark new rules on artificial intelligence, moving one step closer to formally adopting a set of laws to regulate the technology. They call for bans on AI biometric surveillance, emotion recognition systems and predictive policing. Lawmakers also want firms like like ChatGPT to disclose anything that's AI generated, helping distinguish between what's real and what's fake and ensure nothing illegal gets created. Parliament says it will negotiate with EU member states to turn the rules into law. In the meantime, in a major blow to Google, EU regulators are threatening to penalise the company over its online advertising practices. CNN's Anna Stewart has more.
3: The EU is telling Google it should break up its online advertising business, saying it's bad for competition. Brussels has filed antitrust charges against the search giant, accusing it of abusing its dominance in the market of buying and selling online adverts. These claims centre around ADX, which is Google's online auction house. It matches advertisers with publishers, and the EU believes that Google has unfairly pushed customers to use ADX rather than rival ad exchanges. This is just the latest blow for Google. In January, the US Justice Department filed a lawsuit and also called for a breakup of the company. Here at Vivitech in Paris, you'll see all the big tech giants, including Google. And it's where I caught up with Bruno Le Maire, France's finance minister. He says he supports the EU's findings.
4: I think that we are just sticking to the rules and the Commission um, has uh, the role to um, be sure that every private company is abiding by the rules. I fully support the work that is currently done by the Commission. Uh, innovation does not mean that you should get rid of uh,
2: any rule.
3: The EU Commission has submitted its findings in writing to Google according to officials and that kickstarts starts a legal process which could end in billions of dollars of fines and a breakup of the company. Google says it doesn't agree with the EU's findings and they will respond accordingly. Anna Stewart, CNN at Vivotech in Paris.
1: Now call it a pause with a hawkish clause. The U.S. Federal Reserve for now keeping its powder dry, but warning another rate hike may come in July. Fed Chair Jay Powell stressing that he can't sound the all clear on interest rates until we see more progress on a key inflation gauge.
5: I think if you look at the at core PCE inflation overall, look at it over the last six months, you're just not seeing a lot of progress. It's running and it's running at a level you know over four and a half percent far above our, our target and not really you know, moving down. We want to see it moving down decisively.
1: So the next few weeks of what we call Fed speak will be key. Many suggesting that the Fed should have raised rates even yesterday, given the sticky inflation realities, but it led investors to assume a pause and therefore that's the way they went. Powell saying it was prudent to wait, given the tightening already in the system, as well as ongoing banking uncertainties. Binky Chatter joins us now. He's the chief global strategist at Deutsche Bank. Binky, always great to have you on the show. Welcome. What did you make of the Federal Reserve yesterday? I think what got most attention was one, perhaps the view that more hikes are needed, but also if you're hoping for cuts, good luck. Uh,
6: yeah, yes, uh, good morning, uh, Julia, and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I would characterize the meeting as uh, largely expected. So, you know, uh, our House ac- uh, uh, Economics View has penciled in uh, a rate hike in July. And that, you know, currently is our forecast for, you know, the last hike, so to speak. So I think, you know, what uh, is important to sort of keep in mind is that uh, even though we are already in uh, the middle of this year, what is fresh in everybody's minds is what happened last year. And I think the important point to note is that, uh, you know, the big sell off that we saw in equities and risk assets in general had, in our view, as much to do, if not more or, you know, almost entirely to do with uh, the volatility and the aggressiveness and the speed with which they moved. Um, And as Powell himself noted yesterday, uh, they've already raised rates, uh, uh, you know, by by five percentage points. and, and, and what they're talking about now is much smaller increments. So if you take the speed and the volatility view, which we would argue is what explains the big sell-off that we had last year, uh, you know, it's a reason for volatility to come down. Um, and if you look at equities, for example, the S&P 500, or even better, the S&P 500 equal weighted, we will see that it's been pretty well glued, really, over the last uh, year or so to... Uh, you know an indicator of rates volatility the move index and mm. um you know pointed bottom line from yesterday's meeting is uh it, it, the move only comes out uh you know uh, uh once a day uh, uh at the end of the day and uh, what did the move do yesterday it fell basically to the bottom of the range it's a small move but You know, relative to history, I would say rates fall still remains uh, very elevated, so it has room to fall, and what the meeting yesterday did is it did not increase the move, is the way that I would put it, and this move and rates volatility that's really been the driver of uh, equities and risk assets.
1: Yeah. So what you're basically saying is, um, in very simple terms, the Federal Reserve was slow to reach a point of paranoia over inflation and therefore slow to raise interest rates. um, And that made investors paranoid. And actually now they're sounding paranoid enough about inflation. So investors can be less paranoid, perhaps. What does that mean for investors Uh, today? Because...
6: Go on. Yeah. so, So what does that mean? I think that, you know forward-looking, I I think it's extremely important to keep in mind sort of where we've come from and, and, and what basically drove us here. You know, we've had a very, very strong rally in equities. We've had a very, very strong rally in the Nasdaq. That was basically our call coming into the year. The positioning was basically extreme, especially really for the systematic strategies uh, that ball would come down. Systematic strategies would raise exposure, and 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 that's you know kind of uh, you know it's 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 seldom that one's forecasts play out to a T, but that's kind of exactly <laughs> what well. happened. If you look at our <laughs> aggregate, if yeah. you look at our yeah. aggregate equity positioning was sitting at the bottom of the band and the call was it would move to the middle. That's kind of lo and behold, exactly where we are sitting this morning. But the driver was really the move up in systematic strategies. And again, you know, to go back to this point about... uh, uh, of volatility and speed, uh, uh, the main driver of the increase in positioning of systematic strategies was really the declining vol. And and one only needs to look at the VIX to uh, uh, see where we are today. And 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 uh, a VIX at such low levels is telling you that the room for Wall to decline further from here is pretty limited. So mm-hmm. when it comes down to if the systematic strategies you know, positioning, unwind or short squeeze is basically now done and that's our take, then it's really a question about what discretionary investors do. I think discretionary investors have the way that we characterize it, uh, it, you know, remained uh, what I would call firmly, firmly underweight uh, for about a year now. And given the run up in the market, given the run up, uh, you know, uh, in uh, uh, the mega cap growth in tech stocks, you know, the pressure is on to basically raise exposure from those levels. And over the last couple of weeks, uh, I would describe the market price action and the moves as as, as really, you know, is some form of uh, of FOMO, if you want. Uh, Now, (laughs) here we go again response there are. Uh, They they are, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we are getting more information, right? So, you know, uh, uh, the market last year, you know, from a fundamental point of view, was just very much focused on, uh, you know, the possibility of an imminent recession. Uh, You know, here and there now, you know, in terms of the broader, bigger market narrative, the possibility of uh, you know a soft landing, uh, given the resilience of the U.S. economy, uh, you know, defying most uh, economic forecasts, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, is, is rising. I would argue, uh, and 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 the recession. You know, potential recession, which is in our baseline. I mean, it's characterized by a couple of quarters of uh, negative growth. Rising. I'm going to I'm going to run out
1: of time, but, but I'm going to summarize so and say I take. think what you're saying is volatility came down and that allowed markets to lift. But actually, there was not so much participation. And we hope that perhaps that now could lift us um, a little bit more. We're going to get you back, but I've run out of time. So it was great to chat to you, sir, and hear your wisdom. And you most definitely called this bull market, my friend. So congratulations on that, mm-hmm. the chief global strategist. At Deutsche thank Bank you, Bank good there. to so see you, Julia. Thank you, likewise, thank you. More First Move after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are up and running on this central bank bonanza Thursday. A mostly lower open, as you can see there, a touch lower for the major averages. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq easing from one-year highs as investors review the red Fed rate hike pause. The Fed, as we've been discussing, warning it will raise rates at least another two times this year due to persistently high core inflation. The ECB also raising rates again today too. And this China central bank cutting rates as it deals with its slowing economy so lots of different activities and actions taking place around the world new evidence today too that the US consumer spending remains robust retail sales rising three-tenths of a percent last month versus expectations for a slight drop now ringing the AI alarm American business leaders are airing their views on artificial intelligence and a lot of them are worried very worried. In a survey at the Yale CEO Summit, 42% of those surveyed said AI could destroy humanity in just 5 to 10 years from now. Just hold on a second because the other 58% said that that could never happen and they're not worried. Matt Egan joins me now. I think that crystallizes for me the conversations that we're all having about AI, on the one hand, you've got people that are saying, you know, we're all going to die, AI Armageddon, and then people on the other side going, you know, don't be ridiculous. What do you make of this, Matt?
7: Julia, there is quite the divide here. I mean, the glass half full view is that 58% of the CEOs uh, surveyed by Yale, they are not worried about AI posing any kind of existential threat to humanity. Okay, so that's nice. And also, None of the CEOs who were polled, none of them are worried about AI outsmarting humanity, outsmarting uh, humans and wiping out humanity in the next five years. But I don't know. I was kind of startled to see that 8% are worried about a potential existential threat posed by AI in in, in five years, and 34% in 10 years, that is a lot. Um, Jeff Sonnenfeld, the uh, Yale professor known as the CEO whisperer, he told me that he found these uh, findings, these survey results, quote, dark and alarming, and they do come after a number of high profile warnings. Uh, Recently, we had dozens of AI leaders and academics warn about a potential, existential risk posed by AI. And also Jeffrey Hinton, the um, the godfather of AI, he has spoken out about the risk that eventually AI couldn't potentially outsmart humanity and maybe even uh, manipulate humans. And he pointed out that there's very few examples of things in life where you have the more intelligent thing getting controlled by the less intelligent thing, which I think is a fair point. Um, (laughs) Also, we should note here, though, Julia, that the doomsday scenarios, of course, get all the headlines, but you know, we do have some more immediate, more pressing issues when it comes to AI right now in terms of the risks around misinformation and the impact to jobs. Um, and I think that this result, this survey from Yale, I think it really does show how even the captains of industry, even some of the people who are the smartest in the business world, they are still trying to wrap their heads around both the risks and the rewards posed by AI.
1: Yes. I, we should be uh, provide a little context. So it's only 119 companies from across the business sector. And I do wonder whether it'd be quite interesting to go back over it and look at the different sectors and see whether there was a difference in views depending on what sector these people are coming from. To your point, I think about jobs. Um, yes, fascinating conversation anyway. Matt Egan, great to have you with us. Thank you. This is also the perfect introduction to our next conversation. Fresh from recording his recent TED talk, political scientist and author Ian Bremmer describes what he sees as a third world order, the digital world order. And it takes us far beyond what we've experienced in the past, with nation states vying for one another through military prowess and economic might and Ian joins us now he's the president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media and the tech talk is entitled the next global superpower isn't who you think Ian great to have you on the show I've watched it a couple of times now and you really did look like you were having a blast doing this
8: I the first question
1: <laughs> the first question you posed is who rules the world and it's not an easy question to answer
9: it used to be yeah, uh, I mean, you know, you you know, I grew up and, and you know, and a little bit of you, uh, it was uh, the Americans and the Soviets, right? Then they collapsed. Then it was the Americans. And now everyone's saying, well, is it China next? And th- the answer is we don't have global superpowers. Superpowers are countries that can project power in every aspect, diplomatically, economically, technologically, militarily across the world. And no one can actually do that today. Uh, the Chinese project most of their power commercially because they're state capitalist, even though their economy is smaller than the US. The Americans project most of their power actually militarily. Um, and if you look at the technology space, that's actually the power that's being projected is being projected almost completely by technology companies in the private sector. We don't have the regulations. We don't have the institutions. The government leaders don't have the expertise. And apparently 42 percent of the CEOs think it's going to destroy humanity in the next five, 10 years. So there you go.
1: <laughs> yeah. But the other 58 said get a grip. So um, that's yeah. where we are today. But um, th- I'm th- with the we're...
9: 58, by the way.
1: Are you? Well, we're going to get to that. Wait, hold, hold sure. that thought. Um To to your point, though, the beauty of this TED Talk for me was that you did cover a lot of ground in geopolitics and sort of pointed out the the sort of shifts in power and the differences, whether that's the rise of China, the fall of the Soviet Union, the EU's rise and, of course, the US stepping back. But I think your point and you make it is that um, the digital world order shakes that up entirely because then it's less about governments vying for attention and it's about the power of big tech firms and in many cases, and we've talked about it before, um, enormous egos too
9: yeah well we don't yet know what these technology companies want because uh, i mean and i'm not saying they're bad people i'm not saying they should be destroyed none of that and when you meet people that run these new technology companies that are that are driving ai and some of them aren't so new some of them are um it's not like they have horrible values they don't care about their families they're bad citizens Rather, it's that 98% of their time and their headspace and their resources and their labor and and the labor of their employees are just being oriented towards making sure they can build it as fast as they can so that other companies don't destroy them. It's a completely creative destruction, entrepreneurial dog-eat-dog world. And so they're not thinking about how you're going to regulate it or implications for society or Cold War between the Americans and Chinese. And that would be fine if the governments had the expertise or the institutions to think about those things themselves, but they don't. Um and, and it's true that governments have more power overall than companies do. Of course they do. But they need to have the institutions, the framework, the expertise to be able to regulate them. And that doesn't exist right now. Keep in mind, Julia, like six months ago, there wasn't a head of state I spoke with that would ask me about AI. It just didn't come up in a single conversation, not from the multilaterals, not the G7, not the g twenty. Today, it's coming up in every single conversation, literally every conversation. But, but there's a huge head start from these technology companies. And as we look forward the next one, two, three years, this space will continue to be dominated by a very small number of very powerful, very rich men uh, that, are, that are driving how AI is gonna be deployed and experimented um, real time on people like you, me, and our kids.
1: You know, the, the question that comes to mind though, and it wasn't what I was going to ask you, was um, those conversations that you're now having with world leaders, do you think those questions come from a, a position of fear, just wanting to understand more and, and get your expertise? Why do you think everybody's suddenly talking about this and do you rec- they think they recognise that the situation is out of control or at least we uh, don't know where we're headed?
9: It's, it's some of it's fear, some of it's opportunity, but look, so if you think from the American perspective, right, um, the United States really prioritizes war with Russia, really prioritizes competition with an adversarial China they don't trust, really prioritizes the domestic stability of American democracy. Like if you talk to members of cabinet in the Biden administration, top senators, Democrat and Republican, those are the things that exercise them the most. All three of those things, Julia, are impacted very significantly by AI, by the disinformation that comes out of AI, by the proliferation of AI and what it can do in the hands of tinkerers or bad actors or enemies or competitors. And so as a consequence, all of the issues that have been and continue to occupy the priorities of very, very busy, powerful leaders in the US and around the world, suddenly are being impacted by AI. And so they're they're thinking, well, what do we do about that? How do we understand the space? We need to have some hearings in Senate. We need to have an international advisory panel. My friend, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the UN just announced that a couple of days ago. None of these people were saying this a few months ago. And AI is not a new topic. We've been talking about AI for more than 40 years now, but it hasn't played out. It hasn't had the kind of impact, attracted the kind of investment dollars, brought in uh, the the commanding heights of the, the people that are driving technology companies. It is now doing all of those things and in very short order.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't leave any sphere untouched, whether it's uh, increasing military prowess, um, social cohesion through social media, and we know that can be and is already toxic. uh, The jobs market, to your point as well. Um, There was a part of the TED Talk, though, that I really loved, and it sort of takes us back a little bit in this conversation. And it said um, the tech companies increasingly define our emotional identities, and lots of that's determined by their algorithms. And the big question that you asked, and you've sort of already posed it, um, the question is, what do they want? And what do they do with this power and do they act responsibly, whether it's unleashing AI, whether it's um, holding the data that they have as a result of um, our access to their platforms? And I think that's the question to be asking about all of these in what you've defined as a, a sort of technopolar moment. And so much power shifts to the hands of a small group of companies away from governments and they have to work out how they take it back. That's right. I, mean, I think back.
9: today the most powerful individuals on the planet may well be the people that control right. these AI tools. And for the time being at least, and that may not be sustainable, it's not, these aren't the government actors. These are actually these technology players. And I think that's why the governments are suddenly paying such extraordinary attention from a, a starting spot stop of zero um, but it's also the questions that we need to be asking. It's not just about can the markets uh, continue to operate properly when so much disinformation from AI is being flooded into the system? Can we have democratic elections uh, when we don't know what real and fake news happens to be driven by AI bots? But it's also about who we are as people. Uh, and this idea that, you know, when you and I grew up, um our emotions, Uh, were driven by our identities were driven by nature or nurture, how we were raised and our genetics. And increasingly today, it's actually also driven by algorithm and young people um, when they're have their faces in their phones and, you know, when they buy their new Apple vision and they're being intermediated directly by algorithms, that's how they perceive the world around them and the people around them. That's going to change who they are as people. And when we roll out a new vaccine, even during a national global emergency of a pandemic, we test those vaccines first before we release them. A new GMO for food, we test them first before we release them. We are releasing these AI algorithms real time on on eight billion people in the planet, on young people. And we don't know what the implications will be for their development and what we're testing for is addictiveness we're testing we're doing ab testing on what's more effective in driving profitability that's a perverse thing and, and 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 governments need to stop that because the business models of the corporations won't
1: yeah, it feels like an irresponsible thing at this point. Um, you said at one point in the TED talk as well, this is where we discuss the good news, except there isn't any. Um, but, but there are potential benefits for from AI, surely. And we've sort of discussed them. The question is, you've got to get it right. Um, does AI lead us into some kind of digital cold war, Ian, to go back to the sort of geopolitics of the beginning of the talk and where we started here? And I don't even really know what question I'm asking, whether it's between nation states or between tech companies and governments or individual tech companies vying for a pole position in this space. What do you think? Well, I mean,
9: right now, there's, of course, there's a huge war going on Mm. between the corporations themselves. But I mean, the implications of that are just who's going to win, who's going to be worth the most money, whether or not companies end up aligning with governments. And because with the Americans doing export controls on semiconductors that the Chinese need for developing artificial intelligence. You know, that's more than just the speed bump for China. That's an effort to ensure that the commanding heights of AI will not be in the hands of Chinese corporations. And AI is a field that just a couple of years ago, you know, all of the papers were being published, uh, open source. There was an enormous amount of collaboration between American and Chinese and global AI scientists. That's going away. So even as we talk about de-risking, in the US-China relationship and Secretary of State Blinken is on his way to China. In the AI space, we're actually talking about decoupling, which sounds like a much riskier environment, at least in terms of US-China relations. But the final thing I wanna say is, you know, you're know, you right, Julia, in the talk, I said now's where I'm supposed to give you the good news, there isn't good <laughs> news. but that, That's the geopolitical perspective. I wanna be clear to people that I am an enthusiast about AI. I believe that the level of productivity and growth that will come out of scientific advances in education and in health and in driving new energy sources from AI are are unprecedented. They're staggering. They'll create a new globalization. I'm very excited about that, but I'm not worried about it. I don't think I need to talk about it much because the hundreds of billions of dollars going into these investments will take care of that. Like mm-hmm. That will happen. Um, what I'm worried about are the negative externalities on democracy, on society, on civil society, on f- the family structure that that no one will pay for. Um, and as a consequence, we'll all pay for it. That's those are the things I think that are being understated. And you need a, someone who's focusing on the global order, on geopolitics to, to raise those issues.
1: Perfectly put. Thank you for doing so. Ian. Good to, to see you. Good I recommend people watch it. It's a great TED Talk. Ian Bremer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and Zero Media. Thank you.
7: And we'll first move after this. From executive producers Pak chan and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max.
1: Welcome back to First Move. Small, hastily organized groups of Ukrainian fighters were instrumental in blunting the original Russian invasion to seize Kiev. Well now, those soldiers have evolved into a critical component of Ukraine's strategy to drive the Russians out of the country completely. Sam Kylie spoke exclusively with the Ukrainian special ops team in Bakhmut on their efforts to defeat the Russian invaders. And here is his...
4: A special forces night operation. The objective? To bring a special kind of misery to Russian troops. As they arrived alongside Ukrainian regulars, the Russians attacked. A night vision recording of a routine assault that the special forces needed to shrug off How long did you spend under fire like this before you could move
8: Так как продолжалось порядка And then what did you do После этого мы э заняли наблюдательную позицию and наблюдали э готовились к работе
4: Electronic surveillance pinpointed their victims. First, they killed two paratroopers approaching on their left flank to get to the group's main targets, Russian commanders near Bakhmut. A sterile record of an all-too-gritty event in March. First, one officer is shot. Then another, down. He says radio intercepts revealed that the Russians lost two officers and five others to their sniper team that night.
8: Formed when Russia invaded
4: Ukraine last year, this team of experienced veterans works in a secret realm under the intelligence services. They're tasked with tactical work seeking strategic effect. As Ukraine's counter offensive takes shape. Here, using a modified heavy machine gun in a hidden bunker last month close to Bakhmut. Drone operators more than a mile away are directing Brabus onto Russian troops. How many Russians have you killed in this war?
8: Uh, a lot of. <laughs> a lot of. Uh, a lot of. For example, Here's a lot of Russians.
4: This is when you're on the, this, the, with this gun. Yes. How many more or less there?
8: Oh, I don't know. We, uh, we didn't calculate, understand.
4: <laughs> it's the Russians they want to do the counting, because Ukraine's best hope is that Russian troops run, rather than fight. Sam Kylie CNN in Eastern Ukraine.
1: Wowzers, if you suffer from vertigo, perhaps look away now. You are seeing live pictures of two NASA astronauts taking a spacewalk around the International Space Station. They're on a six hour mission to install a solar array on the exterior of the station. And we are seeing live pictures. How incredible. It's their second spacewalk in less than a week. And it goes on for a few hours. And from otherworldly to who runs the world, Beyonce. And apparently she controls prices in Sweden as well. The beehive was buzzing after the superstar kicked off her Renaissance world tour in Stockholm last month. But now Swedish consumers are counting the cost of their bills, bills, bills. Danske Bank says the surge in hotel and restaurant prices in the area may have sparked a surprise jump in inflation in May crazy in love, but not crazy about those higher prices. We'll call that a Beyonce bump. I believe Bruce Springsfield might be the next one. A Bruce bump next. That's it for the show. Connect the world is up next.
5: I'll see you tomorrow.